0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au.
1: And a very
2: warm welcome back to Solidarity
3: Breakfast.
1: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
3: trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
1: I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally.
4: It really is a deal by corporations for corporations.
1: The union forever defending
5: our rights, down with the blacklist. If
6: you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
5: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9 am Saturdays,
7: 3 CR, 855 am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website,
8: solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
3: Good morning, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Before we move into the body of the show, a reflection on perhaps the most troubling thing that has happened in the past week the war in Gaza. Victorian Socialists put out a statement which I feel tallies closest to my feelings on what has been happening. It reads as follows, Victorian Socialists stand unequivocally on the side of the Palestinian people in their ongoing resistance to Israeli occupation and to the violent repression they've been subjected to for more than 70 years. We are horrified that the Israeli military is once again bombing the Gaza Strip and ramping up its war on Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. In just a few days, the Israelis have killed more than 700 people, including more than 100 children. There is now talk of a grand invasion of Gaza with 300,000 reservists massing ominously near the border. Israeli politicians are preparing for a massacre. Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu has threatened to turn Gaza into a deserted island. Its defence minister said that they are fighting human animals, while another called for ethnic cleansing on the scale of 1948, when 750,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes in a campaign of terror. As if to start this potentially genocidal process, Israel's illegal siege on Gaza has now been made absolute. No electricity, food or fuel reportedly will be allowed in. More than 80% of Gazans are reliant on foreign aid. How are they supposed to survive this? This latest round of horror has come about ultimately because of the inhuman suffering imposed on the Palestinian people. The media wants us to believe that everything was fine until last weekend. The clear implication is that only Israeli lives matter because overwhelmingly the Palestinians are the ones being killed year in, year out. Over recent decades, Israel has expanded its control over almost every aspect of Palestinian lives. Today there are 700,000 illegal Israeli settlers in the West Bank, almost triple the number from when the Oslo peace talks started in the early 1990s. An ex-Israeli general recently accused the country's army of being a partner in war crimes and described the situation there as absolute apartheid. We are appalled and saddened by the loss of civilian lives in this conflict, which over its decades-long course have been overwhelmingly on the Palestinian side. We don't accept the idea, widespread in the Western media and politics, that both sides are equally culpable for these deaths. Israel is one of the wealthiest and best-armed countries on earth and enjoys the full military and diplomatic support of the US and its allies. It is committing the crimes of apartheid, occupation and ethnic cleansing. It must be held to account. Recent events are a stark reminder that there cannot be a lasting peace under the current conditions. Peace requires that Palestine be free from the chains of violence and oppression with which Israel keeps it firmly bound. We encourage Victorian socialist members and supporters to attend the upcoming rally organised by Free Palestine Melbourne in solidarity with the Palestinians and against Israel's ongoing bombardment of Gaza. Stand
7: in solidarity
1: with Palestine this Sunday.
9: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, It's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
4: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel,
3: and launching an all-out attack.
9: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday, October 15th.
1: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
9: Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Today is the referendum on The Voice, the campaign against the voice has led me to think long and hard about the issue of colonising cultures, annihilating Indigenous cultures for the dubious honour of being king of the castle, the owner and exploiter of everyone and everything. It led me to reread the Ursula K. Le Guin book, The Telling, which is all about cultural destruction at the hands of fanatics. Read Colonisers. This is a passage from the book that I feel reveals what the colonising impulse refuses to accept. She resisted her desire to learn the name for everything, the word for everything. She was living among people to whom the highest spiritual attainment was to speak the world truly and who had been silenced. Here in this greater silence where they could speak, she wanted to learn to listen to them. Not to question, only to listen. They had shared with her the sweetness of ordinary life, lived mindfully. Now she shared with them the hard climb to the heights. On the same theme, an author's talk held by the History Council of Victoria with Rachel Buchanan, and it was about her book Te Moturo Epe. I didn't say it right, but you'll hear it said, adding to the discussion... This book is a story about the power of art to help us find a way through the darkness. It is about how art can bring out the best in us and the worst. The artworks in question are five wooden panels carved in the late 1700s by ancestors in Talanaki. Two cultures collide. It's a Maori story and a Pākehā story from New Zealand.
4: For anyone who
10: hasn't read the book, could you give us a kind of really brief thumbnail sketch of the story of the Motunui epa?
4: Yeah, sure. So I'm going to show um, the cover of the book. So these are the carvings that the book's about, um, and they once formed the back wall of a partaka or storehouse. So this was a structure that was really important in the old world. They were structures that stored precious goods and foods and so on. And it was made in the mid 1700s hundreds by master carvers. That building was dismantled probably uh, 1820 around that time, and the carvings were placed in a swamp for safekeeping. In that time, there was uh, it's the so-called musket wars. Um, guns had arrived in New Zealand, actually all via Australia. I just read the other day that there were 20,000 muskets traded between Sydney and New Zealand, uh, so-called, uh, between 18. 18- 20 and 1835. <clears throat> it was a massive arms trade. Anyway, these carvings were placed in the swamp for safekeeping. The aim was that they would be retrieved once the troubles had passed. But the um the intertribal wars were then followed by the wars of colonization and Taranaki, and no one came back. So my book really begins um in 1971 when the carvings emerged from the swamp and were found illegally sold, smuggled out of the country, and um. Bought by a guy called George Ortiz, who was an enormously wealthy man who collected art from the Pacific. Um, and they would have really stayed hidden. No one would have known about this illegal deal if it wasn't for the fact that one of George's kids got kidnapped um, by Italian radicals and he had to raise a ransom. So then the carvings were put up for auction. And my book really documents the extraordinary chain of events that led to their fake provenance being revealed and then the government's efforts to retrieve them. That's the story of the book, I guess. How did you come to invest several years of your life in writing this history? You know, I'm an or descendant of Taranaki and um, really from 2000 on my life and work has been completely tied up with exploring what that means. So it's a a complete driving force in my life, you know, and um, so everything kind of flows in behind that. Um, and I just saw these carvings at the uh, Pukyariki Museum in 2019 and was really fascinated. I'd heard a little bit about um, the repatriation that the government had paid four and a half million to buy these carvings back, which is pretty unusual in itself that stolen goods would be bought back. But yes, the the absolute beauty uh, and power of the carvings or or taonga tupuna, which means treasured ancestors, really, really struck me. And then I just sort of started to ask a few questions. So it wasn't a planned thing. It was more like taking a few steps. One of my mentors, Mahara Okiroa, sounding board's the wrong word, really, but someone I like to talk to about things. And I said, what do you reckon about these carvings? And we just talked about it a bit. And I got the feeling it would be okay. I mean, I'm pretty careful what I take on. I I try not to just Stumble in too much, but at the same time, if you're working in the mouldy world, you 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 need to be cautious, but you also need to be bold. So I was I was both things. I think I was cautious, and then I decided, no, I'm going to pursue this story. And um, one of my relatives, Honiana Love, who's a friend, she also helped me. She said, why don't you make an official information act request? And um, that's called FOI here. So that's really when I started getting access to all the paper records, and I became really um, fixated, is probably the right word i became i remember when i first saw the records at crown law when i saw that there were land court records in the box so uh, new zealand has two jurisdictions there's a separate court um that governs maori land so that's a different system of ownership which is um collective and it's the only land court in the world that's based on genealogy and i recognize those records because my whanau or family uh, also has land that's through that um, system so that i think um I had enough knowledge, just a little bit, to recognise the importance of what I was looking at. And it was really fascinating to see those lists of names of owners of so-called Māori freehold land alongside all these documents like the House of Lords finding and all these legal documents that really, I I felt that it was worlds colliding, just Mm. even in those archival records. That's what guided me, that sense of these absolutely colliding worlds, you you know, quite unexpected. Um, And it wasn't just a story of, the New Zealand government doing something. There were undercurrents already there in the paper records.
10: How did she go about making sense of it all? And how, I suppose, did she supplement the archive of the colonial state with other kind of, you know, Maori and other perspectives?
4: It was really hard to piece together what was happening. That was a lot of reading. And then I would just have these conversations with uh, Matua Mahara and another relative, Uncle John Baxter, and and my sister Hannah. And I'd talk through the things I was finding and then trying to figure out what we thought it meant. I've sort of, that sounds like a silly answer in a way, but I kept coming up against things that I couldn't explain and we couldn't explain collectively. So when I started, I did this really detailed timeline of events in 1978, day by day, because it was only about. Uh, 26 days from the time the New Zealand government discovered that the provenance of these carvings was fake to them getting this injunction to stop the sale. Now, the public service does not normally move that fast. And this involved massive cooperation between foreign affairs, between uh, Crown Law, between the Department of Internal Affairs and... um, it was just quite unprecedented and at the same time that that was all happening uh the conservative government which was led by Robert Muldoon ordered the invasion of Bastion Point so that was when the land land rights movement was really um resurgent uh, in New Zealand and um, that's land in Auckland and the army forcibly evicted uh people that were peacefully protesting so that happened um, cabinet signed a memo that um, authorised as much money to be spent as possible to get these carvings back. And then there was also arrests of Eva Rickard, who's a Tainui, she was a um, kuia involved in land rights protests in Raglan. So I just couldn't, it was really bizarre to me. And I, I started thinking, yeah, um, I guess that forces were at work beyond what I could really understand. It just didn't seem to make sense that this very conservative government that wasn't really known for its pro Māori views was taking this action.
10: What do you think now was the the reason, you know, that explains why that happened?
4: Well, um, not to get too spiritual, but I, I do just think that this was an example of um the sovereign power of Taranaki itself. So whether you want to say that's the the Maunga or the mountain or the place or um I, I yes, yeah, so I, I feel that I often thought when I was working on this book, did colonization really happen? Was there a sense that there was just such a strong through line of of power from the old world that mm-hmm. that I saw um so yes, yeah, so I, I that's why I decided, I suppose, that some of the book that there would be this other intelligence in the book, and that would be that the carvings themselves or the those the two Puna themselves. I mean, yes, that that's that's what I thought. It just, you know, um To take that action all the way to the House of Lords and for that to be happening at the same time as the first um, Waitangi Tribunal claims in New Zealand and that one of those early claims was for uh, stopping um, sewage outfall and sin fuel um, outfall into the river right by where the carvings were buried they were the same places so I I just found that um, that seemed to be beyond serendipity yeah. The way in which you you know you feature
10: the the Motinui epa as you know kind of animate characters in their own right um you know you talk about them having agency over the process and you sort of inhabit their consciousness and talk about you know how they felt being in storage in a dark box um you know what they think of certain individuals who come to look at them Could you tell us a bit more about the decision to to animate the epa and and write the history in that way?
4: Yeah, um, well, I grew up in Taranaki, so I was a school kid in New Plymouth. And, you know, I remember going to the, um, it was called the Taranaki Museum then, and we saw lots of beautiful things. We would see all these carvings in glass boxes. And I remember looking at the white labels and there was never any name against the person who made it. And then it would always be said, like, found in a swamp, found in a drain, found in a ditch. And I remember being really young and and feeling you know the things that you find in a drain is the stuff you throw away isn't it I mean that's the sort of you know it's something that you as a child you throw something a, a leaf in the drain and watch it flow down the gutter and there was a real I was always really puzzled by that why these precious things would have just been left and now of course as an adult I realized that um well they weren't thrown they were carefully placed in 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 spots that were known to for their preserving powers. But but then I wanted to sort of go. So there was that, that was the first basic thing. But then it was also thinking about the world of art and the importance of makers and biographies and identities attached to famous artists. So, you know, there's a chapter in the book called Old Masters. And I I just kept thinking about all those European artists that many of us I guess have studied at school or university and when people visit Europe they see them all but even in New Zealand someone like Colin McCann who's our big name white guy painter now why are there names and identities attached to that and then you have a masterpiece you know you have you have work like this and there's no names attached to it and there's not really any biography but does that mean there's not power you know what what so what what do I do with that absence do I just sit back and accept that it's not known and feel shameful or do I go well okay um there is a power there and I'm going to I'm going to think about about that you know we we believe that um carvings are people returned I mean that that's what we believe and um I really had that demonstrated to me a few years ago. My dad, who passed away in 2017, was a paediatrician, and he founded the Māori Health Committee of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and was is represented in a poe that's in the offices in Wellington. And, you know, one of my kids was like, oh, my God, has paleo been 3D printed? And I'm like, yeah, well, sort of like that. So it was just, I guess, um, I'm giving a sort of wide-ranging answer. I thought I'd give it a go trying to not put myself in there, but to have another perspective commentating on events, another version of events. And that perspective would be the Taranaki one, you know, not, not the crown and not, not me as a historian here, but this different perspective. And I just started experimenting, you know, and the first bit I did was trying to think about talking about the Ortiz family and the Patinos and all that where their wealth came from the Bolivian tin magnate so it's just such an amazing story in itself and um you know back home in New Zealand when you meet people for the first time there's sort of it can be that quite a ritual encounter where you learn about who they are and who their people are so that that second chapter um inheritance that's really what I started doing imagining that the carvings were really empowered to meet this this fano from very far away and trying to find connections with them. So that was probably the start of doing something different. I mean, it's all factually based. I did a large amount of research um, and I just thought, how would I present the story of this family? H- who might be, you know, ha- how might they be measured as as people? And, and I felt that anyway. I tried to measure them from a Taranaki perspective.
10: You know, it's challenging kind of orthodoxies of Western storytelling. You know, it's very poetic um it often it often felt like sort of you were evoking sort of oral storytelling techniques like I felt like someone was holding me by the hand and kind of walking me through this story Mm. and another really distinctive feature of the text is the the use of Maori language.
4: My first go at learning Māori was um when I was 18, um, you know, after Polytech. So um did that with my dad, an immersion course with uh, Te Huirangi Waikiri Peru. So Wairato, there might be some others on the line who recognise that name. He was the person who took the Māori language claim all the, way, all the way to the Privy Council, actually. So um, anyway, that's a whole amazing man. I'm a failed linguist. I keep keep trying, but that has that didn't stop me. I didn't let myself be limited. I didn't let myself in any way say, because I can't speak fluent Māori, I can't do this. Or because I'm not living in New Zealand, I I just, I really just let all of that drop away. And I thought I am going to do this with what I know. So it's interesting that, you know, you say or others, oh, there's lots of Māori words in the text. And then it's like, oh, you must speak fluently. It's like, my knowledge is so scant yet compared to, you know, it depends who you're measuring it against. One thing I would like to say about the book is it's you know it's a three-dimensional object and it represents a huge renaissance or change in my own whānau or family. Um, so the, the book opens with a poem by our relative, J.C. Sturm. And uh, J.C. Sturm is an incredible poet. So this is at the Museum on Pukiyahoo, and it's in English. There's a few Māori phrases in that poem. But the book closes with um, Kūpū Whakakapi composed by my sister Hannah. Who is a fluent Māori speaker. So to me, this is a, this is actually about renewal and abundance that within our own whānau, what had been lost. So our direct ancestor was a translator at Pariaka. Like he was incredibly skilled in both worlds. And within about, you know, it didn't take long for that to be destroyed. But, you know, my youngest brother, Joseph, I'm the oldest of eight, he's also a fluent speaker now. So that is an incredible thing that's occurred within our whānau. So I suppose... The book's also about that, Eve, is that colonisation, yes, there was mass destruction in Taranaki and so much was lost, but there's still so much growth, you know, even amongst that. And, um, you know, it's it's wonderful to speak to you on the eve of tomorrow, as I mentioned, when emailed earlier, um, the settlement's been finalised for the Taranaki Maunga. So, wow, who would have thought that when I was a kid or even 10 years ago that the name Egmont would be gone forever. It's gone wow you know so it's I, I guess that's the other thing about this this book and these amazing carvings is it just shows me you never you never know when the story's over it never really is over and, and in Australia you know for Australians there's all those visual metaphors of burnt trees with the little green growth isn't there so um that that's sort of that's what I think about mouldy. like a little bit even something is better than nothing right and, you know, there's no um, I realize that for Australian readers, it's hard. There's not translations in brackets and there's no glossary. And I'm I'm sorry um, if that's a challenge for you. But um, in thinking about that, you know, books like Cormac McCarthy, some of you may have read The Crossing. I read that and that was liberal in its use of Spanish with no translation. And likewise, you know, there's um that amazing book I've just read, Deborah Dank, We Come With This Place. And um that's that really uses her language and English interchangeably. And I, I like, I like it, I think it's good. But you can look up if you want to know what the Māori words mean, there's a good online dictionary. So you can just Google it up as you go if it's a trouble for you. Yeah. <laughs>
10: At what point did you decide with the publisher to kind of have it so lavishly illustrated?
4: And I have to say, Eve, it was just such an enormous amount of work. I was involved a lot and was able to um, exert some good influence. I wanted archival records as images and it took a while to get that accepted that I thought that they would work really well. Um, I had to put my foot down and say I refused to have any images produced in the 19th century by soldiers. I was not going to have any representations of the war in Taranaki that were made by Pakau people. So that pretty much wipes out any representation of the war. All visual imagery imagery is produced by um, violent colonising agents, literally soldiers or surveyors. And I just said, no, I'm not having it. And I I was really insistent on it. I was like, I'd rather have a blank page than images produced by others looking in. I mean, there is—I shouldn't be so dogmatic because I love being dogmatic, but there is a drawing by Charles Heathy of a um, partaka, which is really beautiful, and that's the that's that's in there. So once you wipe out that, then you have to start thinking quite differently about what the images would be.
10: Uh, the story ends um, with the New Zealand government finally. Um managing to buy back the Motunoi epa from the Ortiz family and spending several million dollars to do so, but then to kind of give them back to the Taranaki, Mm -hmm. um, which sort of, you know, seems like a kind of rare instance of a colonial state engaging in a kind of reparations, maybe for like the stuff they Mm -hmm. stole in the first place. is that kind of thing happened elsewhere? And could it be
4: a model that could be replicated more broadly, do you think? I, I do think this story is a bit is quite unique. I don't know of any other instances where that is it's happened in New Zealand in quite the same way. I, I feel that this was a bit unique. Um mm-hmm. I certainly um imagine if the Australian government bought back everything that had been taken from here, um, that would just be you'd have to have a fortune to pay. And, you know, there is that deeper question of should you pay a thief to retrieve stolen goods? I mean, you know, if someone stole your car, would you pay them to get it back? That's putting it pretty crudely. I don't know if it's a model. I mean, I I I think that it's really great that this has happened. I think there's so much more that can be done to connect people with their past, with our past, with our treasures and to create narratives around them so that we're building meaning. You know, we, we're, we're really saying this is ours and what can we, I, you know, I feel very connected to these these Tupuna, even though I don't know their names. And I feel I feel very connected to the people who made them in a way actually, and their power to keep acting in the present, you know. And I'm really proud that laws in New Zealand certainly changed as a result of this this theft you know, the Protected Objects Amendment Act, I document that, and the Commonwealth Law Scheme. I mean, there's there was a, there's been a lot of impact that's broader than just these carvings. And I was just actually back in Taranaki um, about four weeks ago, I, I gave a talk at Uwai Marai, and went and called in to visit the Epa, and it felt really great. Like, I mean, they just felt very alive to me. At the start of 2020, I went, I went in for about 10 days every day, just to spend some time in there. And I often felt pretty depressed it was often a bit of a sad feeling you know um I was interviewed by this amazing um writer Airana Nariwa he's a novelist actually his first book is called The Bone Tree um it's just come out and we went up to visit the carvings together and Airana is a beautiful Maori speaker and he mihi or greeted the carvings at length and I felt a little bit Whakama not not a little bit I sort of stood behind him but it was beautiful hearing he was able to communicate You know, that was beautiful. That's what he could do and I can do something different. So, yeah, hopefully I've done, I think I've done okay. That's, yeah.
6: I hurt myself today To see if I still feel find a way.
2: OK, this is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're n- allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave
1: now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to (laughs) gecko.org.au.
9: Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate
1: with us. A 3CR supporter.
3: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Early this month, the Victoria Trades Hall Art Prize exhibition was opened in Paddy's Gallery at Trades Hall. I went along.
1: So you're Mitzi. Can I'm you busy.
3: can you tell me all about what's going on in the uh, Paddy's Gallery?
1: So, um, we've wanted to do an art prize for a little while, but then, you know, things got thrown. Because, <laughs> because of, of COVID, COVID. Of yeah. reasons. So, we finally got around to doing it. You know, we wanted to make sure everybody is, because art as work, you know. Um, instead of doing it like a, you enter and you might not get anything. We set it up like uh, you present your concept and we picked uh, 11 concepts and then ask those artists to then create the work and they get paid a fee. And then um, there's only one winner, so all the artists that don't win, they also get a loan fee for letting us have it hung in the gallery for till the end of the year. Oh, wonderful. And then the winner, obviously, we acquire the work and they get the the big prize.
3: Okay, and so what's the big prize?
1: Four and a half grand.
3: Oh, that's a lovely big prize. And also you're going to create a collection, I'm assuming? Yes, yes, yep. So the whole idea is uh, the brief that they've been given is to have some art that is focused on people at work.
1: Yes, so this year, because it was the first one, we wanted to make it like very sort of obvious. So the theme was We Are Union and I think the next year we're um, looking at doing one that's more based around the building. Um, so, like, you know, artwork's inspired by the hall itself, uh, but this year, because it's the first one, we wanted it to be more people-focused and more about, like, what it is to be union, collective action and
3: whatnot. Can, can you tell me why... I know that it seems like an obvious question... Uh, yeah. ..but why is art so important? It's a uh, million-dollar
1: question. <laughs> no, well, no,
3: it's like Art at Work, which was a creation in the 1980s... Yeah. ..and um, unions... And uh, Trades Hall got involved and they did things like take theatre to workplaces and uh, they uh, did a whole range of things like that. And there was a lot of printmaking and depiction of events and ideas that were important to workers that may not be important to the big end of town that usually buys art.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, Well, I mean, what's life without art? And you can't, like, as a worker, you can't just go to work and then that's be your life i mean oh you
3: that's a bit radical
1: (laughs) (laughs) bread and roses and whatnot um you know uh, i think that art that's by people from not the big edit town is some of the best art which is why this is so good because it's open to everybody of every skill and um you know in their artistic career or whatever, and, um, and there
3: is there's quite a variety, isn't it? Yeah. And some of it's quite humorous.
1: Some of it is quite humorous, <laughs> and some of it's quite garish, but some of it's like very subtle. And um, you know, it's a bit of something for everyone there, which is what the union movement is about.
3: Yeah, it is. Um, so, how did you choose? Who cho- chose
1: the winner? Uh, so myself and Luke Hilakari, who's the secretary at Trades Hall, and. Uh, Simon Abrams, who's the creative director at Fringe, and we got him in as an uh, objective third party to have a look as well, you know, and he's also got the credentials or whatnot. And we just uh, had a discussion about, you know, we read the artist statement for each one and um, also just like, you know, the execution and um, creativity of each work. And did you actually liked it? And yeah, and the one that we thought would suit the Hall's collection as well, yeah.
3: So Mitzi, how do you fit into the Trades Hall? Who
1: are you? Uh, I'm on the comms team, but I, I kind of end up doing those MISC arty jobs around. The, the best Hall. jobs? The best jobs, yeah. Yes. So you know those big velvet banners in there? Um, I'm, they're my design. Oh, wow. Um, and I, that was one of my first big jobs. That was the job where... Where, where Luke said, oh, I didn't know we needed an artist at the hall, and I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so and now I get to do fun things like that and put on um, the art prize and um, uh, work with uh, Jennifer who did the Zelda out the front. And yeah, I get to do all these sorts of fun projects.
3: Yeah. yeah. You've been doing this job for six years.
1: Yeah, six years. Yeah. It's the longest job I've ever had, and I don't imagine I'll be uh, leaving anytime soon. <laughs>
3: Tell me about Paddy's gallery. Oh,
1: so I actually met
3: P- Paddy oh, Garrity. Paddy. Yeah.
1: I never met Paddy, but every time someone talks about him, they just talk about what a lovely man he was. Um, and he did a lot for the hall uh, long before my time um, in terms of the arts. And I guess like the spirit of what he did back then is what we're trying to bring back to the hall now. After the renovations, we had this empty space up here. And we were like, what will we do with that space? I was like it's almost the perfect sort of size for a a small gallery and um, it's also just outside the museum so um, which lends itself to uh, you know doing a little circuit.
3: This is why they have an artist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Comes up with a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting the mix.
1: Oh, just the mix of works, like there's so many. We've got got some oil paintings, we've got some photography, we've got some ceramics. who it? Yeah, beautiful, detailed linos, yeah. you know, collage. It's good. Like, it's also interesting to see um, what came out of the concepts that they put through.
3: From the concept to the, res- yeah, yeah, the results. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Quite different?
1: No, oh, well, I mean, Not you, you cannot visualise what somebody's going to make from yeah. their words.
3: And so, some yeah. of it is actually um, metalwork and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like that. He had to build that because that thing weighs like sixty kilos, so he had to build the big frame for it. Very heavy duty. But yeah, um, this is Madeline who made the ceramic.
3: You've got a piece here, haven't you? Yes,
5: I so do. can
3: yeah. you tell me what I the experience was like to be involved in
5: this? Um. Uh, it was really good. I, I, uh, in my own art practice, I've been thinking about um, artist labour a lot, so. I, um, I've made a series of ceramic clocks that are about of slavery, and this is sort of like a continuation of my piece in this show, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah right, and, and so you had to do a concept and they paid you for it, which is all very nice too.
5: Yeah, um, so you pitched the concept um, and then you, got, you get paid for the labour of it and they also pay a lending fee while, while the piece is in the gallery. So,
3: so how do you feel about that?
5: Really good, because it's something that most galleries don't even consider paying artists. They usually uh, either charge you or, at best, you'll have a free space. So getting paid for your work is pretty exciting.
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything else you wanted to say about this experience?
5: I suppose the the theme I really enjoy, because I I think a lot about unions, and the theme was We Are Unions. So um, my piece is about radical love, which is about, like, unionism is kind of a form of love like like you pay into the collective and then you help out your comrades in the collective by being in the union so that that was yeah some some of my past works have been focusing more on um, the negatives as in what artists are missing out on but it was nice to focus on a positive I think yeah
3: (laughs) from 3TR and oh, I've just course. come to uh, talk about, to people about this event and yeah. you've got a piece here haven't you? Oh
11: my god yes I do. Can you tell
3: me about the experience of working oh, on it? Ben by the
11: way. Ben the oh. photography piece in that corner. So oh okay so, so Alright
3: so Ben tell me about your experience of being part of this. Don't run right away.
11: <laughs>
12: um, yeah, it was a really, really good experience. It's, it's nice to see Trades Hall kind of setting a standard in like, actually funding the arts and like, giving money to artists rather than asking for money from artists in order to exhibit. So, uh, yeah, in terms of making the work, I made a few visits to Trades Hall and kind of explored the space. Um, and I was wanting to hopefully document some of the people who work here and keep the place running especially cleaners and people who maintain the space. Um, took a whole bunch of photos and ended up landing on the image of um, uh, the, uh, the vacuum cleaner in the hall, so, yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. And also the very Victoriana sort of uh, solidity of the rooms yep. on the shape of the building, right?
12: Yeah, exactly, yeah. I was yeah, definitely interested in documenting... Uh, like the history of the space but also speaking to the fact that the maintenance of the space and the union movement is something that like is ongoing.
3: What about you? Hello. Hello. You had to put forward a a brief and what were you aiming to do in uh, when you were putting forward an idea?
11: Yeah so um, I guess I was interested in sort of Um, I guess new frontiers of unionism and like modern challenges of like the union movement and like unionized workers. So um, one thing that's like close to my heart is the challenge of, uh, I guess, the use of like technology and the relationship that technology can have like positively and negatively with working people. So as an artist in particular, you know, we have lots of, I guess, tech corporations who make big claims about like, technologies that will replace artists or will replace arts workers and I yeah feel very strongly that that's not true and so I guess my piece was a bit of an exploration of different struggles that workers have around technology and how they're all very much interlinked and how we can have solidarity with each other across industries across sectors and types of work um, to fight you know, negative uh, uses of technology um, in the workplace.
3: So uh, ha- having a space where you put a piece of art up which is talking about those kind of uh, issues that's unusual isn't it?
11: Yeah I think so. Um, yeah it was a bit of an experimentation and I knew that you know, given this is the first sort of iteration of this art prize that I could probably try something a bit different. So yeah, hopefully it's not just, um, you know, something nice to look at, but something educational as well that can bring a new perspective into the union movement. Um, I think we have like lots of amazing celebrations of like union history in this exhibition. So I think it's nice to also have, um, you know, perspectives that are like very current as well and talking about issues that are current to today.
3: What about the fact that you got paid?
11: Oh, it's amazing, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I recently quit my like full-time job to pursue art, so having these paid opportunities where you didn't have to submit a completed work to enter was really different and not something that I'd seen before, so... It's something that, as a union member and as an artist, like, I'm really proud that Trades Hall is leading the way with. Um, And, yeah, I think it's the fact that we have so many emerging artists as well exhibiting tonight is, like, a testament to the fact that, like, respecting the work of art also helps bring new talent in and develops, like, new artistic talent as well. So it enriches our culture, it enriches, like, union culture and... Yeah, it's like really true to the spirit of unionism. Yeah.
3: Thanks for talking to me.
11: Thanks so much.
3: Um, what do you feel about this? Uh, it's a, it's a bit of bread and
12: roses, right? It's uh, a, art should be accessible to all people. So yeah, I think it's a real testament to Trades Hall to put on an art prize that yeah allows amateur artists, professional artists, uh, submit work and then and then open it up free to the community while the Fringe festival's on. I think yeah. it's great.
3: It's interesting isn't it?
12: Yeah, it certainly is and and I feel like each uh, piece of artwork has its own symbolism in it and and, yeah, tells its own story.
3: Are you one of the artists? Yes. What was your experience of doing this work? Uh, Well, I um,
0: I had been a photographer for Places Victoria at a work site over two years. At officer at the building of the Shire offices. And so I have two and a half thousand images of workmen and work sites. And it's just wonderful to have somewhere to, I've actually got uh, about 20 works based on construction sites workmen, but it's wonderful to have a prize or something that especially relates to uh, people working together, which is the whole, whole idea of this. So I went through and found the image that I liked the best and my painting down the end there is to do with the workmen working together that it takes everybody's input to make it
3: work. It's interesting, isn't it, because in the past what was considered to be worthy of becoming an art piece wouldn't have included workmen on a site.
0: No, but I was also interested in workmen on the site because... I have done a series of paintings on men in suits where men everywhere just used to wear suits. It was the common thing that they wore, which was a bit boring. I mean, even, it... even
3: those pictures, the road diggers wore suits.
0: Yes. And then, all of a sudden, this high-vis gear. And that's the unifying factor of men in suits. So it's a whole new version of men or women in suits. And when I was on site, I had to wear a white hat and uh, and high-vis vest. And being a woman, I think they thought I was from Worksafe, and so anybody who wasn't correctly attired would immediately get out their hats and check that they had everything right. And I was somewhat frowned upon, <laughs> and it was hard to find a women's toilet. But um, yeah, it was a great experience.
3: Tell me about the fact that you got paid to do the um, the work.
0: To do this work is yes. it is wonderful.
13: We're delighted to welcome you here to the opening of our inaugural Trades Hall Art Prize here in Paddy's Gallery. And it's our hope that this is going to be an annual event. (laughs) I agree. And so the items shown here tonight will no doubt become collector's items, pieces of Union history. This prize is intended to support artists as workers and to appropriately compensate artists of all experience levels and backgrounds because art is for everyone. This building here has a very proud history of supporting the arts. It was here in the Timber Trades Hall in 1859 that the Artisan School of Design was established. This school would provide the first taste of high art painting to some of Australia's most famous painters, like Tom Roberts and Frederick McGovern. Frederick McGovern recalled his Trades Hall experience in his notes. The following Friday evening saw me off to the Trades Hall School of Design, Ligon Street, Carlton, sitting on the stairs of the old wooden building waiting for eight o'clock when the school opened. Well, I was in seventh heaven. I'd really got to the Palace of Art. It was a joy all day while trying to knock out rusty bolts and help tyre wheels and paint and putty the same to let my mind wander over the charms of painting. So to the artists who are exhibiting their first week works here tonight, I can tell you that you're in very fine company. You can say you're part of the same artistic tradition as Frederick McGovern. Trades Hall has championed working class access to the arts since our earliest days. It was a foundational principle of the eight hour movement that workers should have time away from work to enjoy arts and culture. Jack Mundy and Sydney Trades Hall might have named the green bands, but it was Victorian unionists who first took strike action in defence of public green spaces and the buildings such as the Regent Theatre that we loved. We have for generations also included access to the arts in our industrial campaigns. During the construction of the Arts Centre Famous Spire in 1984, the Builders' Labourers Federation workers took action to demand better wages and conditions, among their demands, a golden ticket for building workers and their families to attend any future productions at the Arts Centre indefinitely. (laughs) Bring it back! Bring it back! You can see the letter that sets out a compromise claim in the Workers' Museum in there. These days, Trades Hall is very proud to be an arts venue in our own right, and we're incredibly proud to be hosting the Fringe Festival. These 11 finalists were chosen from nearly 50 submissions. The finalists are Madeline Thornton-Smith, Ron Guy, Catherine Forsyth, Sue Jarvis, Michelle Lieber, Cass Stevens, Judy Coe, Chris Laurie, Glenn Corbett, Danny Humphrey, and Ben Hatting. As you can see, these works are all very different and it was a very, very tough job to judge them. The artworks were judged on the theme We Are Union as well as Creativity and Execution. The winner of the prize tonight will receive a $4,500 prize and their artwork will be added to Trades Hall's permanent collection. Now, without further ado, I'd like to announce that the winner selected to receive that grand prize Was Cass Stevens. And that's for her work entitled Behind the Change. Behind the Change pays tribute to the spirit of Australian unions and their profound impact on workers' rights throughout history. Inspired by the old Parliament House in Canberra during Bob Hawke's tenure. As the President of the ACTU, the illustration depicts a Labor staffer's desk surrounded by iconic campaign posters and references to pivotal moments in Australia's union
9: history.
14: As we come marching, marching In the beauty of the day A million darkened kitchens A thousand mill grey are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people hear us singing bread and roses bread and roses as we come marching marching we battle too for men For they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts starve as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing, their ancient song for bread. Small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we fight for but we fight for roses, too. As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days, for the rising of the women means the rising of the race. No more the drudge and idler, and the toil where one reposes But a sharing of life's glories Bread and Roses Bread and Roses
0: Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Up to the Cup is a 3CR supporter.
3: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. For all those of you who tune in for Kevin Healy's weekly analysis of the week, unfortunately, Kevin has been waylaid by a cold. And as he said, it's a pity since so much needs to be satirised this week. But hopefully he will be back on the boards next week so don't forget to tune in. The last federal election was about a lot of things, and one of them was the ending of the cruel and frankly inhuman treatment of people as it was applied to refugees. Policies which have been perpetrated by both brands of government, but particularly Kafkaesque, with the long and grinding LMP federal government just passed. When Labor took office, it was due to such things as Albanese's slogan, no refugees left behind. People began to think that after decades of fighting for refugee rights, maybe, just maybe, things will change. And for thousands, it did. But for other thousands, it didn't. On Sunday, 8th of October, the Refugee Rally for Permanent Visas organised by RAC, Refugee Action Collective, had a strong focus on the actions of refugees themselves who are calling for permanent visas, some of who have been here in limbo for up to 11 years, their lives on hold. They are taking a range of actions to raise awareness of the frightful trap Australian refugee policies are for people who are refugees. This morning, we go to that rally and then on to voices from a smaller rally outside the Langsham Hotel in Southwark, Melbourne, where Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity Claire O'Neill was having lunch with the US Chamber of Commerce on Wednesday, 10th of October. This is part of the bringing the message to the Minister at her electoral office and dogging her as she carries on her public duties.
1: Our first speaker is from the the group called 12,000 Captive Souls, uh, Mabubi Mishahi. They have been behind organising these brilliant protests that have been happening at Oakley, out front of Claire O'Neill's office, that has actually led to Claire O'Neill's office being
8: shut down, which is really, really impressive. Good
15: afternoon. My name is Mahbubi Shahi. And today I want to talk about the track policy and injustice fast track policy. I want to talk about IAA which is made it by previous government. I would like to tell you about when and how was my life changed. I have been here since 2013. I come from Iran. The country which is minority religion is a crime. All of us waiting for nine years to process our cases. But after nine years, when Albanese's government promised us no refugee left behind, they promised to support the refugees, we're still silenced. We're waiting with the hope. But after announcement this year, on February, about ROS visa, and they divided us between 19,000 people and 10 or 12,000 people, I believe is injustice again. Do you know what's the meaning ROS? ROS is a resolution of a status. That means we were supposed our resolution. Actually the same status with the other 19,000 people. And they divided us. And constantly Andrew Joyce and Claire O'Neill said we are processing you individually we left behind. Individually means ten more years, five more years. We lost our life. We lost our parents overseas without meeting them, without hugging them. And then I believe in my heart it's my right, it's our right to get protection visa. I understand became victims of the politicians' games. And then we planned the protest because we believe silence is enough. 11 years is enough. 11 years is limbo. Enough is enough. Yeah, we believe silence is enough. And then we made a big protest. Sit down and strike. Three weeks ago, at front of the Clare O'Neill's office, who is responsible to finish our nightmare, who is responsible to change and make a certain decision. 18th of September, between 8 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, constantly, loudly ask front of the Clare O'Neill's office about please talk to us, please urgently process our case, because it's enough, waiting is enough. And then they respond closing their office. In a sense, talk to us. All Cleonese office, suburb, and business understand us. Empathy to us. You know, I've heard lots of the suffering story. I've seen lots of the kids during the school holiday hold the placard higher than them. And say we born here without visa, we born here without any Medicare, without any medical means, without any health for family. Shame. Yeah. Because they ignore us. We planned another protest the second week and the third week. We are standing the sunny days. We are standing on the pouring days. We hold the placard and say, please urgently process us. And I've heard lots of stories with the same situation. Someone got Medicare, someone doesn't have Medicare. Someone allowed to work, someone doesn't have allowed to work. Someone like me, as a nurse, I'm working for 10 years. I stood up with the Australian for the pandemic duration, but I don't feel safe without visa. I don't feel this country is my country because I don't have a visa. And I believe that for all of you, if the government gives you a chance, you can contribute with the Australian. You can build up the Australia. That means I figure out silence is enough, enough is enough at this moment. I believe in my heart we have to get the protection visa this year. And now, after us, some sit-down strike in Sydney for one week. The beautiful women starting to walking from the Melbourne to Canberra. The, the guys cycling from Brisbane to Canberra, because everyone knows that. That's enough. Silence is enough. Please, come along with us. We got the four weeks. Four weeks stay on the Claire Owners office, 1719 Utterton Road, Oakley, from 10 o'clock in the morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Still we've been there to constantly ask, please, we get the we need the protection visa, we need to feel equally. And then hopefully we be gathered together with a loudly say in the Canberra 17 and 18 of the October, the same time as the women arriving in the Canberra to get enough is enough, silence is enough. Please don't be silent anymore. Thank
16: you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Khudbi Timur, the president of Afghan Locally Engaged Employees Alliance. Afghan Locally Engaged Employees are those people who work with the Australian Defence Forces shoulder to shoulder in the battleground in Afghanistan. And the reason why we established this movement to ask the Australian government to meet their moral obligation and provide safety and freedom to the extended family of Afghan locally engaged employees. I was born as a refugee in a refugee's home in Pakistan and I have had that status of refugees for eighteen years in Pakistan and I have come to Australia in twenty fourteen as a refugees. When I first arrived in Australia nine years ago, I joined a shared house with people seeking asylum who did not have permanent residency, who did not have safety, who did not have freedom, and who did not have right to work. It has been nine years that I have been living now in Australia, and those friends, who I joined with them, a shared house nine years ago, they still don't have those rights of safety, freedom, right to work, and some of them, they do not have even Medicare. It is very difficult. Seeing this situation is very difficult. This nine years, almost now in total 10 to 11 years, these people have been separated from their families, from their loved ones, and they have not been provided certainties. I wish I would, ho- I would have stood here to celebrate fair and welcoming refugee policies, but this is unfair, unwelcoming refugees policies of Australia, pushing refugees. I and my two other colleagues started a long walk from Dandenong to Canberra, which was 18 days long work. Why we were pushed and obliged to do that long work and advocacy for the extended family of Afghan locally engaged employees? Because there is not a policy for them. There is not a safety for them. And Australia government should have that policies. So what I'm saying now, that Australia government should uh, make a fair, welcoming and equally refugee policies to all refugees in Australia. So we ask Australian government that 10 to 11 years is too bloody long provide the safety, certainty and freedom to people seeking asylum who are suffering, who are in limbo for 10 to 11 years here in Australia. And also I am calling on Australian government that after the fall of Kabul, most of people uh, from Afghanistan, almost uh, 250,000 people from Afghanistan escaped to Pakistan for the safety and freedom. And very recently, Pakistani government has announced a crackdown on Afghan refugees. And they are at risk of being arrested, or uh, pr- imprisoned, and deportation. And we ask Australian government, DFAT, UN agency, to put pressure on a Pakistani government to make Pakistan as a safe place for the refugees and, uh, until the Afghan refugees find a way for safety in third countries. Thanks everyone. Thanks for your passionate for the refugees and asylum seekers. Thanks everyone. There was a time when I used to go to park
7: prison with my kids. Like every other day we would be there. We would be standing outside. We'd be looking at the blinded windows, looking at the men that were behind us trying to support them. During that time, I got this book for my children from the library. The title was, My Name Is Not Refugee. I just thought it couldn't have been more perfect. My name is not refugee. It doesn't need any explanation, because you are a refugee, and you can wear that title with pride, but it's not what defines you. It's what has shaped you, but it's not what defines you. It has shaped you, like being an immigrant shapes you. Like having lived in the same safe house, in the same safe suburb, in the same safe country has shaped you. All in very different ways. But it has shaped you, not defined you. Being a refugee is part of your journey. But it's not what makes you, you. So no, when we scream and when we chant, free the refugees, we see you. We see you when we chant, free the refugees, we chant, free the mothers, free the fathers, free the children, free the teachers, free the road builders, free those who speak up, free those who stay silent, free the writers, free the taxi drivers, free the dreamers, free the doers, free the artists, free the journalists, free those who always keep going, and free those who cannot go anymore. Free the doctors, free the cleaners, free those who have lost hope, and free those who believe. When we chant free the refugees, we chant free the people. Free, free the people, free the refugees. Free, free the people, free the refugees. Free, free the people, free the refugees. Free, free the I would like to introduce our next speaker, Janet Rice. Janet is Federal Green Senator for Victoria and co-founder of Victorian Greens. She was also Greens Foreign Affairs spokesperson and continues to advocate strongly for refugees from
8: a range of countries including Afghanistan, Iran, Myanmar and Sri Lanka. What we need, the message that we need to be having to our government is we need to be putting justice and human rights at the centre of everything we are doing. And our government is not doing that. Our government is continuing on the legacy of the previous Liberal governments and Labor governments before them who accept and are happy to lock up innocent people. People who all they have done is to be working for freedom, fighting for their rights, fighting for their rights in their home countries and then having to flee for those rights, free for their lives. All the people, so many of you here today, that's all that you have done and yet you've been locked up, you've been vilified, you've been persecuted, you've been tortured and our government has been choosing to do that. There is a lot of huge problems in the world that we're facing today. You know, the the outbreak and the escalation of war in the Middle East today just leaves you with complete dread when you think of the amount of human life and the suffering that's been going on in occupied Palestine, the violence now, the innocent people that have been killed in both Israel and Palestine. Huge. You look at the wars going on everywhere else. You look at what's happening in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, and you think... Yep, we need to be working hard as an international community to be putting those rights, putting justice, working for justice around the world at the heart of everything we do. We need to, Australia to be taking that seriously, to be working multilaterally. These are big things. These, this job isn't going to be finished by the time, you know, in the next year or so. That's what we need to be working on. But there are things that can happen that our government must be doing, our Australian so-called Labour Party government that really says that they care about people that they must be doing, that for me as a Green, I am to continue to be fighting for. And there are three things that this government could make a decision to do tomorrow. One is for everybody that is here on temporary and uh, asylum seekers, refugees who are here on temporary visas could be given permanent visas. That needs to happen as soon as possible. Yeah. They need to make that commitment. They need to Really, they need to live up to their election promise. Those 12,000 people, and many of you are here today, Maboba spoke so beautifully about what the the pressure, the stress, the awful situation that you're in. That can happen immediately. Secondly, the government must completely close the awful torture camps in PNG, and the rumours are in still operating in Nauru as well. And all of those people, they, they should be brought to Australia and cared for as human beings, as people, as fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, children, people who have lives and who have rights. That also Australia could do immediately. And the third thing that I'm calling on at the Albanese to do immediately is to sack Mike Pizzolo. Mike Pozzolo, who was the architect of Operation Sovereign Borders, he was the architect of our system of locking up refugees in Nauru and PNG. He has been revealed to be doing absolutely inappropriate actions of influencing um, previous Liberal governments totally beyond what a public servant and the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs should be doing. He needs to be sacked. He needs to go, Anthony Albanese needs to sack him tomorrow as well.
17: Hello everybody, my name is Samlati I'm a lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Before I start, I want to acknowledge that we're here on colonised land of the Wurundjeri people. And some of the things that we're here to oppose. The division of people according to legal categories. Locking people up according to whims of the government for as long as the government wants. These aren't techniques that were designed by the colonial state for people seeking asylum. These are techniques that were designed by the colonial state first to colonize people. They were directed and perfected first against First Nations people, and then they were expanded to everybody else. Australia is a scene of ongoing colonialism. Settlement was not an event, it's a process. I want to acknowledge that here first and foremost. So earlier this week, thank you. Uh, earlier this week, we heard from the ministers, Claire O'Neill and Andrew Giles, that there is an attack on our asylum system. They told us that our asylum system is broken. What is the source of that attack? It is, according to them, poor working people who come from the Pacific, from Malaysia, from India, where I was born, and from China. And so sophisticated is their attack that they come here to work on our farms to work doing deliveries, to do the hard, rough work that other people will not do. And we are told that they are our enemies. Meanwhile, just kilometres away, a group of Tamil Sri Lankan women and their allies, other Iranian women, were walking by foot approaching the capital. They're walking to protest the fact that, like 12,000 other people, they have been left in the lurch, declared bogus, as now people who arrive by plane are being, and left... in total limbo, unable to build their lives in Australia and yet unable to go home. Meanwhile, we have close to 2,000 people who were transferred from Nauru and Manus Island in the community who have been here for close to a decade, had kids who have become citizens, become part of our community, become part of us, unable to make a permanent home and being shunted off to New Zealand, as though they're simply numbers. These are, according to the government, not attacks on the integrity of, of our migration system, Rather those attacks are coming from poor people in other parts of the world. Shame. I'm shame. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to say that our enemies are not other poor working people in other parts of the world. We can thank you. We cannot, our our enemies are in parliament. Our, enemy, our enemies are people who would seek to divide us according to arbitrary legal categories and dates that they make up. Our enemies are people who create divisions between real and bogus asylum seekers, between economic migrants and refugees. Our, people, our enemies are people who design categories and processes to see people fail. In other words, our enemies are the laws that govern and dictate the conditions under which people have to live if they have the misfortune of seeking asylum in this country. People will have better. We will be here every day, every year, every month, until the laws reflect the justice that people truly deserve. Thank you very much.
18: I am uh, Saeed uh, from Iran. I'm uh, come to Australia 2013 with my family. I still living Australia with a temporary visa. Some uh, families here not any visa, not any medicare. Why more than 10 years, all of them in limbo? We want permanent visa, we want change, we want justice. After more than 10 years, it is not justice, it is not human right. We want permanent visa for all. More than 12,000 people here in limbo, yeah.
3: Now we're down at South Bank and uh, the Minister O'Neill is in the hotel. So now you're going to actually take the message to her personally.
9: Yeah, my message uh, to her is like, you know, we are here for 11 years now. And 11 years full of stress, anxiety, depression. Many families here, you know, we are just ruined, you know, their lives, you know, because, you know, my family my parents in iran you know i've lost my father without seeing him for the, for the last time i didn't have the chance to go even to a third con- country you know just you know to ask my family to come to the third, third country and just you know to to have a visit you know to see my father for the last time and after 11 years you know a lot of people here as said said you know they don't have key, uh, they don't have like any like like rights like, like other people like other citizens here and they just struggle they live day by day you know and they still don't know what's gonna happen in the future so I don't know why they, they're doing us they're doing that to us but one thing is very clear they just want us like you know I don't know just live in stress in anxiety and just get old. And after that, they don't know what, I don't know what, what they're gonna do to us. They're gonna kick us out or what, we have no idea. So what we want is just, you know, they let us to settle down here, you know, have a proper visa, permanent visa. So we can work, we can live like other people. We, we can build our lives here. I've been here for 11 years now. Yeah, I've been here from uh, since like from 2013. When I came here I just turned to 30 and now I'm I'm almost 41 years old. And that's a very long time. A lot of people may maybe they don't have any idea what 11 years is like. You know, 11 years like every year every day you know every week every month for 11 years full of stress we have no idea what's going to happen and that's really not fair for us you know i have no idea what we have done you know to the politicians here that they don't want to see us you know they they just ignore us you know i have no idea and they don't even talk to
18: us they don't even communicate with us we want justice, we want change, please. Thank you.
2: Let's remember what's really happening. 70 men in misery on in Port Moresby. Refugees trapped in the detention centre on Nauru. Medivac refugees on six-month bridging visas with no prospect of being allowed to stay in this country, even though some of them have become award-winning artists musicians, winemakers, and, and uh, so on and so forth. What about the 10,000 people whose applications for refugee status were rejected under Fast Track, a system set up by Tony Abbott to ensure that asylum seekers failed in their claims for refugee status. 10,000 of those people live in this country 10, 11 years after they were rejected. Some of them have children. Some of them have children who are going to school but will never go to university. Some of them have the right to work and they pay taxes, but they have no right to stay here for more than six months at a time. Some of them have no visa, no Medicare rights, and are basically living on charity. 10 years, what can it do to a person's psychology? What can it do to a person's self-respect? I've seen refugees choking back tears because they feel they have failed their children. They have not failed their children. This government has failed their children. Claire O'Neill has failed their children. The people who are self-harming or committing suicide under this Labour government, Claire O'Neill has failed them and has their blood on their hands. So don't talk to us about humanitarianism and progressive policies when you treat the refugees like garbage. Prove in action that you are a humanitarian, Claire O'Neill, by bringing those 70 men from Papua New Guinea. Prove in action, Claire O'Neill, that you are a humanitarian by reopening the fast track process and giving those 10,000 people the opportunity to prove they are refugees and worthy of permanent protection.
19: Don't want to waste your life Accusing and fighting Go back to the bush And ground yourself Listen to the spirits they Or relate to the land And people Wake up in the morning here
3: come to the end of the show. Uh, today we, uh, we reflected on uh, the um, war on Gaza. We, uh, we had a chat about cultural uh, differences and annihilation of indigenous cultures by colonisers. We uh, went on to uh, the art prize at the Trades Hall and uh, we finished with Refugees. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents.
20: Oh